Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. We've been working our way through the book of Luke, 24 chapters. I preached on chapter 23 way back at Easter. Um, and, uh, and so I'll do chapter 24 next week. And I've been kind of doing a mini-series in Luke 22, the last three weeks, including this weekend, all around uh, the Last Supper, the Passover. And, uh, and so for the three weeks we've been in, in this uh, section of passages from verses 14 uh, to, verse, uh, to verse 34, and today we're just going to continue on that. And so again, the setting where we're reading today, this is the Last Supper. They're eating the Passover together. Jesus will be betrayed by Judas tonight. He will be crucified tomorrow. That's where we are in this story, all right? And so right where we ended it last week was they're sitting at the table there, and, uh, and, and Judas is, is, is going to, is going to uh, betray Jesus. We, we read about that. And now verse 31, we have this. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Okay, so that is certainly a bit ominous, right? And we will get into that more towards the end of the message, but... Verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And I just love Peter. Uh, don't you love Peter? I mean, he's, he's going to have a massive fail here. It's going to be an epic fail. But, uh, but he, he wants to do right. Like he, his heart is in the right place, right? I'll go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know, uh, that you know me. So again, this is obviously a very famous story. Uh, we've all heard this story many times if you've been in church before. And, uh, and Peter is going to deny Jesus three times at the crucifixion. And so Jesus is, is prophesying that here. So he tells Peter, tonight you're going to deny me three times. Now again, it'd be very easy to treat this message uh, you know, week to week, you go through these passages. It's very easy to treat these messages in isolation from the other passages. And I want to make sure we don't do that. And I want to remind you of where we ended last week's message, because you have to see in this conversation, okay, this same conversation, Jesus tells Peter, uh, you're going to deny me. We know this passage. We could just keep going. But we have to remember what Jesus just said, the very sentence before this, what he said here. And so I'm just going to take you back briefly to last week, verse 28 uh, to 30, and Jesus says to the disciples, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Okay, so you remember, we talked about that last week, but I want you to remember, I don't want to treat this message in isolation, this passage in isolation from the last one. Basically, in the same breath, Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, one of the things I love about you guys is your loyalty. You have stuck with me through my trials, through thick and thin. Okay, and then like the next sentence, the next breath, he says, and Peter, you're going to deny me three times. It's like, how on earth do you even hold those two things in tension? How can, how can Jesus even say, I love you guys for being so loyal? Oh, man, you guys have stuck with me through everything. Oh, and by the way, Peter, uh, tonight you're going to abandon me and deny me three times in my hour of deepest need. Like, how can he say both those things at the same time? It's literally what's happening here. Again, it'd be easy to treat this message in isolation, just preach this passage and forget about last week's passage, but this is all part of the same conversation. You guys are stuck with me through thick and thin. Peter, you're about to abandon me. And so the question is, how can Jesus say both these things at the same time? And, and the first thing is, it's actually true. Okay, the first reason Jesus can say this is it's actually true. These guys have stuck with him through thick and thin up to this point. And 
It's true, tonight, Peter is going to abandon him in his time of deepest uh, need. Peter is going to deny him three times. And again, it was a little bit similar to some of the stuff I said last week, but I just want to remind us again how beautiful this is. It's amazing to me that Jesus does not define Peter by this failure, by this one mistake. Isn't that true? Like he looks to his past and says, you've been loyal. He looks to his future and he knows Peter's going to come back. He sees him turning back and repenting and, and ministering. He looks to his past and said, this is who you are. He looks to the future. This is what I see in you. I see you coming back. And this in the middle is a mistake. He refuses to define Peter by this one mistake. And what's incredible there in verse 32 is he's already looking. Peter hasn't even, Peter hasn't even done it yet. Peter hasn't even fallen yet. And already he's looking ahead to him being turned around. If you guys can go to that next uh, passage there, the next verse there. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, before Peter even denies Jesus, before he even has this epic fail, this big fall, he's already looking ahead. He's not, he's not dwelling on it. He's already looking ahead. I know you're going to come back to me. Is that not gracious? Is that not generous of our Lord Jesus? Have you ever thought that when you're, you know, when you're going through stuff, because that's the thing, you can read these stories. It's so easy to just read these stories kind of in the third person, and that's just, that's a totally different person. That's a totally different thing. But this is the same Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Jesus that was this generous and gracious with Peter is the same Jesus that is generous with you and I. Have you ever thought that when you're struggling with stuff and you're going through things, that even before you fall, he's already looking ahead to your restoration? Isn't that amazing to think of? Again, now I should, I do have to put this in, assuming you're repentant. That, that is an assumption, I have to, I, and I have to talk about that, right? I mean, assuming you are repentant. If you're not repentant, then Jesus doesn't foresee you turning around if you're not repentant. If you're just in your sin casually and comfortably, then you're encountering not the graciousness of Jesus, but the wrath of Jesus, because he has both. There's no question. The Bible is clear about that. And so, but if your struggle with sin is because of weakness, it's not because of rebellion. It's not because you're proud of your sin and you want to live in your sin. If, you're, if your struggle with sin is because of weakness, then have you ever stopped to think that Jesus, before you even fall, and you just feel like, I fall and I fall and I fall, and I'm doing everything I can, I just feel overwhelmed. Have you ever thought that Jesus actually looks to you and he's already looking ahead to the end, and he's not mad, he's not mad at you, he's already looking to the end and he's saying, when you have turned. When you have turned. I can see in the future, I can see this happening. He's gracious and he is encouraging. Now, the question is, how does Peter's denial, it's like, it's like, it's not even that Jesus sees ahead to him turning around. It's that Jesus is actually going to use him in ministry after he does this. He's actually going to turn a bad thing for good. He's actually going to take Peter's denial. It's not even just that it's going to kind of be like forgive and forget. I'm going to, I look ahead and I see you turn around, so I'm going to forgive and forget. It's that he's actually going to take a terrible thing. And I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. What Peter did was terrible. And some of the things Jesus says in this passage we need, are sobering. We need to think about it. It's not that what Peter did was not bad. It was very bad. What Denying Jesus was a very uh, wicked, terrible thing to do. But the point is, um, Jesus looks ahead and he says, I can see you turning, but he's actually even going to use this terrible, wicked thing. He's going to take this terrible, wicked thing, and he's actually, even though Peter shouldn't have done it, and he's going to take it, and he's going to use it for good. And we see this in the job description, right? 
And, uh, but I pray for you that your faith may not, may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus can take something that's so bad that Peter shouldn't have done, and then he can turn around and use, and use that terrible thing to actually be an encouragement to other people. Isn't that true? Isn't, isn't it true? You say, how does, how does Peter's denial help him to encourage others? I'll tell you how. For the rest of his life, including up to today now, when we read, when we re- read uh, this story, when we, when we read you know, uh, the, the books that Peter wrote, when Peter talks about the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus, isn't it unbelievable how encouraging that is when you know who he is? For the rest of his life, whenever he preached Jesus is gracious and Jesus is forgiving, people could really be encouraged because they knew this guy's been forgiven even though he abandoned Jesus and outright denied him at his lowest point. Like, that's a really bad thing to do. If Jesus can, you, if Jesus can forgive him, he can forgive us. Actually, Peter's weakness actually becomes an encouragement to the brothers. When you have turned, strengthen the brothers. Jesus actually takes a bad thing and turns it for good. And uh, now Peter never gloats about it. He never brags about it. But it's interesting to me too that throughout the scriptures, they're so open about his failing. Aren't you glad? Like if it was all hidden, how would we be encouraged? But the fact that he fell so hard, and it's in the Bible multiple times, in all the gospels, I mean, I wonder if Peter sometimes just thinks, like, why not just once? But it has to get written down four times, right? And, even, and, and, and so this is just a well-known thing. Well, Peter is well-known throughout the, the early church. His openness, the openness of the early church to this failing is part of this whole encouragement and I think that's an important part, even, uh, you know, piece for us even to think about for just a moment, is that what's more encouraging, uh, you know, as I, as I think about this and Peter and this whole thing and how Jesus used him, what's, what's more encouraging to all of us, a perfect person or an imperfect person? Isn't it true that, that perfect people are not an encouragement to us? Isn't that true? And I've talked about this before. Like when you're around, if you're a parent, when you're around someone whose kids are perfect, right? And you probably know someone like that. And their kids always get straight A's and their, their kids are amazing at every sport and their kids do listening prayer every day on the playground and they tell all their friends about Jesus. And, <laughs> and, and then they, they, so these people talk to you and they tell you all about their kids and you go home and you feel, oh, I just feel so blessed. Wow, that was such an encouraging conversation. Is that what you feel? No. I mean, maybe if we were godly enough, that's how we would feel. We would celebrate with them. But we're not that godly, and so we go home and we feel down. Oh, my goodness. My family feels so far short. Isn't that true? Or when you go to someone's house and every single thing is perfect. The house is perfect. Nothing's out of place. Everything's clean. The dinner is, like, just immaculate. There's, like, six courses. They're dressed perfectly. And they show up as if they slapped it all together in 15 minutes. They spend the whole evening telling you all the stuff they're involved in, and their kids are in this and this and this and that and that and that. And you go home, and you just feel exhausted. How do they have 48 hours in every day? (laughs) And you don't feel encouraged. You feel like, I'm useless, right? The fact of the matter is, perfection is not an encouragement to us. Isn't that true? When are we encouraged? I'll tell you when we're encouraged. When people are real about their weakness. Isn't that true? And we see that in the Bible. What an example we have in the Bible. The Bible, and not just in the story of Peter, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's amazing how open the Bible is about the failures and weaknesses of all of our heroes. 
of Abraham and David and Moses and Peter and how open these guys were in the early church talking about the fact that all the gospel writers write about this story means it was openly being talked about what Peter had done. And so it's an encouragement to us. You know, I, I read a book uh, uh, recently. It was a leadership book. It was a study of, of, of different successful organizations, not just in business, but it included business, but it was across a wide variety of disciplines. They, they studied businesses that were very successful and military units that were successful, sports teams that were successful, uh, you know, in medicine, all sorts of stuff across the wide. Because their point was they were looking for principles that went across different areas. And they were trying to find out, are, are there any, are there any uh, you know, continuities, are, you know, consistencies, are there, is there anything that, that would be, you know, consistent across all these different areas that would, you know, separate out very successful organizations from not successful? And it was interesting, they identified three things in the organizations they all looked at. They identified three things uh, that all of these different uh, organizations had in common, even though they were in very different uh, arenas. And one, I was very fascinated by the book. One of the things they found that in all of these organ, that all these organizations had, I was so fascinated by, by this is a secular book, secular study, was one of the big three things they found across all the different things was vulnerability. That organizations with vulnerability from the top down, that from the top down in these successful organizations, whether it was in the military, whether it was in sports, whether it was in business, from the top down, people were vulnerable. So the leaders, first of all, did not hide their weaknesses. They openly talked about weaknesses. They openly talked about fears and worries. They openly talked about uh, uh, things they weren't good at, the mistakes they had made. They were open about that. They were open in meetings about how they felt about how things were going. And it was a culture that the whole organization had this, this kind of uh, uh, sense of vulnerability. We're open. We know what each other is feeling. We know what we're, what we're trying to do. We know what we're afraid of. We know where we're weak and all these sorts of things. I was fascinated that vulnerability and, and, uh, and I was so fascinated about it because it's something, I mean, Pastor Ray uh, over, the, over the decades here at Southland has really cultivated through, you know, just confession and just the, the way he preached and everything over the years. Um, but it's true that an organization with vulnerability, when we're open about our weaknesses, it's a huge encouragement to people. I remember a few years ago when I first started being open, and I'm not going to go into detail about it now. I've talked about it before, but when I first started being open about the fact that over, the, over my time here at, at church, I've had several bouts of, of extreme anxiety, including uh, one bout several years ago where it was so bad for a few months that I actually went to a doctor and, and talked about possibly getting medication. I thought I was going crazy. And when I first started sharing about that, I was terribly embarrassed because I thought to show weakness was actually then you can't lead. And in fact, what I found was the exact opposite, that when we share weakness, that is the biggest encouragement to people that you can actually ever be, to be real about your weakness. And I'm not talking about making up weaknesses. It's not about, oh, I want to really encourage people now, so I'm going to do something bad so I can encourage them. That would not be an encouragement. But just be real about the weaknesses you have. You shouldn't have to make any up because we all have them. Amazing to me that uh, after I just started being open to that, the tremendous encouragement it was to many people in our church, there is not a month that goes by. Sometimes it's not a week that goes by. But there is not a month that's gone by the last several years where I don't have uh, people contacting, different people from the church contacting me 
who are going through severe anxiety. And you know, the, the best message points I ever preached where I thought, well, that was, a, that was a really good point or that was profound or whatever it is. The best things I ever planned, the best things I ever preached, the best things I ever prayed about to preach have not encouraged anybody a tenth as much as just saying I went through this. And people will come up to me and they say, can I just talk to you about this? And then when they hear that I've gone through it, it's like, oh, it feels so good that you've had this too. It just feels so good that somebody else has gone through this. Isn't it true? Because now I don't feel alone anymore. And what I've found is when someone doesn't feel alone, see, there's something, and this is, this is right in the physio, physiology and the neurology of our brain. The, the brain science now tells us that when it comes to relationships and stuff, we bond with people strong enough, or the strongest, or the deepest, I should say, uh, over weakness, not over strength. If in your closest relationships, you're only open with each other about the things you're good at and the things you like and the things that are your strengths, You'll have a relationship, but it will only go, be able to go about this deep. But in those relationships where you can be totally transparent about weakness, actually, and it's a, just, it's a physiological thing, where you can be transparent, where you can be vulnerable, those relationships can go much deeper on a brain and soul level. It's just an absolute fact of science. And what I found is when you can be transparent like that, like with Peter here, turn, then you're going to strengthen the brothers, is when you can share weakness with someone else, something literally happens inside of them. I don't feel alone anymore. And after that, now, when you share truth with them, it goes far deeper and has far more impact than when you're just someone strong. Because as long as you're someone strong, you're someone untouchable. Because the fact of the matter is, none of us is always strong or always perfect. And so Jesus actually... Uh, loves to use people who are open about their weakness. Now, I should just say one thing. We'll go back to this because I want to I show you something else here in this passage. But um, I, I just need to say this because sometimes people will swing too far one way or the other and it's always important to have kind of a bookend on this. There is a, there's such a thing as good vulnerability and there's such a thing as bad vulnerability. Good vulnerability is kind of vulnerability where you can be transparent about your weakness with other people in such a way that you're both encouraged to keep growing and to keep persevering. Isn't that true? So if it's, if it's a weakness that's a sin, not all weakness is sin. Some weakness is just weakness. But if it's a weakness that's a, that's a sin, good vulnerability is a kind of uh, transparency where two people come together and they're vulnerable about their weakness in this area and their vulnerability encourages them both to keep taking the steps they need to take to come out of their sin. Amen? And repent. Or that, can, or that encourages them to keep persevering and not give up. Bad vulnerability sometimes happens too, and that's where two people are transparent with each other in such a way that it encourages them to give up or to stay in their sin. That would be bad vulnerability. So, you know, uh, two people who are both in bad marriages get transparent about how bad it is, and in their, you know, kibitzing together, they're actually just encouraging each other to be worse spouses and to give up on their marriage. That would be bad vulnerability. Or two guys get together and they both have a lust problem and they share about it and it's like, oh, it feels better that I'm not the only one in this, but it's not the kind of feeling better that causes them to repent and work harder to come out of it. It's the kind of vulnerability that causes them both to feel encouraged and safe in it and they just keep, keep living in it. So there's good vulnerability. That's the kind of vulnerability that leads to repentance and perseverance. There's bad vulnerability which just encourages me to stay where I am. And that's really important. But I want to keep going here because I want you to see something that in all of this, because whenever, I'm always going to be so, so cautious when I talk about Jesus taking our sins and using them for, for good, people can almost get this like little feeling of safety. Well, it's actually okay that I sin. It's almost like maybe the sin's not so bad. And I want you to notice in this passage that, yes, Jesus is going to 
take and use Peter's sin. In the end, he's going to turn around so it's something good so that Peter can be an encouragement to the church. But the reason Jesus is able to do that is not because the sin isn't bad. It's because Jesus is so amazing that he's able to do that. What Peter did, as I said before, is very wicked. I want to just show you a couple of things here. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, do you see how serious this is? The fact that Peter denied Jesus three times is so serious that in a sense, Jesus sees him as having left him. He says, you're going to actually have to turn. I see you turning in the future, but you're actually going to have to turn and come back to me. It's like you left me. You're going to turn. When you've turned and come back, then you're going to be able to encourage the brothers. And I want you to see something else there. And this one, we really need to take a moment and think about but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now think about that for just a moment. Because so often we evangelicals, we have this lingo. We have these theological systems. And we're so convinced of the truth of our theological systems. And we read the Bible through these theological systems and miss half of what's there. And the fact of the matter is, pretty much any system you read the Bible with is broken somewhere because it's a human system. We need to read each passage for what it is right there. So Jesus prays, I pray for you that your faith may not fail. Most evangelicals today don't think it's possible for a person's faith to fail. They think, I prayed a prayer once when I was in camp. Praise God for that. Love camp. Love the seeds that are planted there. But I prayed a prayer once at camp. I just live however I want the rest of my life, and it's no big deal. Why would the Son of God take time. He's actually concerned about Peter. This sin is so serious. It is so serious that Peter's faith is hanging in the balance. His soul is hanging in the balance. And the Son of God stops to take time to pray. This is so serious, Peter, what you're about to do, that I have actually prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Did you know it's possible? It is possible to go into places of sin that it is so serious. If you are casual about it, if you persist in it, that it's actually possible for you to lose your faith, for your faith to fail and be shipwrecked, as it says in Timothy. For you to actually be hardened to a point where you can't repent anymore. For your, for your heart to be hardened to a place where you don't love Jesus anymore. And it's serious enough that Jesus himself would pray for Peter. Now, I find it encouraging that Jesus prayed for Peter. And of course, whenever Jesus prays for stuff, he gets his prayers answered. Wouldn't it be great to be able to answer your own prayers? That's just awesome. I love it. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Good thing he prayed for Peter, or Peter could have been in trouble. So it's amazing to me. What Peter did was very serious. He could have lost his faith. He could have walked away forever. And yet, even in the midst of how horrific that was, it was a bad thing. And for the rest of his life, at no point would Peter have said, I'm so glad I, I did that because now I've been able to use it as an encouragement for the church. No, no. It's Jesus' grace that that bad thing could be used for good. That's how amazing Jesus is. It's not how unbad Peter's sin was. That's the glorious truth. And the glorious encouragement to all of us here today is that Jesus wants to use you in your weakness as well. I mean, if he can use a Peter who's denied him at his point of deepest need, who's literally said, I don't know Jesus, what an awful thing to say. If he can use a person like that to literally head up, be the main leader of the church in those formative first years after Jesus rose from the dead, he can use any of you. In fact, it's Jesus's joy to use broken, weak people. Did you know that? If Jesus was a golfer, I, I want to just take a moment here and I want to talk about if Jesus was a golfer. Do you mind? If Jesus was a golfer, and I'm pretty sure he's not. I don't like golf. I can't imagine how Jesus would like golf. So uh, I'm sure he's not a golfer. But if Jesus was a golfer, okay, let's talk about what kind of a golfer Jesus would be like. 
Would you like to know what kind of a golfer Jesus would be like? Everybody would show up at the tournament and they would all have all their snazzy bags. You know, $1,000 bags with special little pockets for the tees and another little pocket for the balls and special pockets for all the different clubs. Just lovely golf bags. And in each of these golf bags will be hyper technologically advanced golf clubs. I never knew that technology and, and golf could be so tied together, but each of these clubs is, is like $1,000 or more. It's made out of rare earth metals mined from like three miles down. It's carbon fiber this, it's carbon fiber that. I mean, a two-year-old could swing these things and, and knock that ball 350 yards, okay? The head of the, these drivers are just like, there's, they've been 3D modeled to death, and it's just the perfect service for hitting a golf ball. And the golf balls themselves have technology in them, and it's just amazing stuff. And they would all show up at this tournament like that. I want to take this on. And then Jesus would show up. And Jesus, the first thing you would notice is he would show up in his bag, would look like something that's been pulled out of your great-grandfather's attic. It's like, did you get that thing out of the, straight out of the 1930s? Like, it's falling apart. There's no special pockets. There's only one wheel that works. He has to tote it over his shoulder half the time. And in this golf bag, now some of you are a little nervous. Trust me, I'm, just let me get to this analogy, okay? You're like, where is he going with this? And then in his golf bag will be the worst, most abused, broken down, saddest clubs you have ever seen in your life. He pulls out the driver, it's about a foot too short for him, and it's tuck tape in the middle just to keep the shaft together. It kind of wiggles as he, as he pulls it like this. There's a huge chunk. Not only is the, the driver, the face of the, the club not, you know, 3D technology mapped, all that sort of stuff, it's got a huge chunk missing out of a piece of it. How are you even going to use that? And all of his irons just look, it's just the saddest bunch of irons you ever saw, rusted up. Like, those things should go on a junk heap. And then everybody lines up and they start teeing off. And these guys with their carbon fiber this and carbon fiber that. And they're just whacking that ball 400 yards and 400 yards. And then it's Jesus' turn. And he comes up with this tuck tape driver together and a big chip in the thing. And you think, okay, how's he going to hit the ball and not, you know, use the part of the club that isn't chipped? And then Jesus does something you never expected. He actually uses the chip to his advantage. And he swings this club, and it just about falls apart when he hits the ball. But he doesn't drive a beautiful drive 400 yards like everybody else. His shots don't look like anybody else's. They go places nobody expected them to do, and they do it in unexpected ways. And he actually uses the, the chunk that's come out of this driver's head to put some kind of a funky spin on the ball. Instead of just going 400 yards down the fairway, it does this little zipping thing through the trees and takes a shortcut and ends up right in the rough close to the green. And everybody goes, what in the world was that? And then he takes out his nine iron again, far too short, rusty, all this sort of stuff, and, and hits on top of the ball, skins on top of the ball, and puts so much topspin on the thing, the thing just digs through the grass, through the rough, and then right up next to the hole. And the whole tournament goes like this. And he takes the weaknesses of each of these clubs and actually uses them to make bizarre shots that don't look spectacular, and yet somehow at the end of it, of course, he comes out and he wins because he's Jesus and he wins everything, right? <laughs> and at the end of the tournament... Not a single person says, what a spectacular set of golf clubs. Where can I get a set? But they all say, what an incredible golfer. Isn't that true? They don't give any, there's no glory. He came in. It's actually his joy. He doesn't want to use the carbon fiber. You go have that. I'm going to beat you with this. And he uses these and nobody says, wow, he won that tournament because of the great technology in the clubs. That's not how he wins it. He wins it because of who he is. 
Now, can I show you this analogy in Scripture? Because you're all thinking, well, you just made that up out of your head. This is actually all in the Bible except for the part about the golf. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me read this to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers, that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. Things that are not. No skill, no talent, not connected to a powerful family, no influence, no power, the things that are not, nothings. He chooses nothings to bring to nothing the things that are. Why would God choose people like that? Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He didn't pick Peter because he had it all together. He didn't pick any of those disciples because they had it all together. It's his joy to take broken down people. And it's his joy. It wasn't his joy that Peter did what he did. But it was his joy afterwards to forgive him. And it was his joy afterwards to take him. And even though he had done something so terrible, he just about lost his faith. And Jesus had to pray for him to keep it. It's his joy afterwards to take Peter and restore him and actually make him the leader of the early church. It's his joy to do that. And so that's a wonderful, glorious truth. And I think we need to meditate on that for a long time, some of us. That there's some of us here today that we constantly say no to God and we constantly compare ourselves to others. God must be, God's not choosing me, he's choosing someone else. They're better than me at this, they're better than me at that. I'm not good enough at this. I've done this in my past, yada, 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 yada. And I think sometimes Jesus must almost be exasperated in heaven. It's not about you. The reason you compare yourself to others and the reason you want to be so talented before you serve Jesus is because actually you want the glory instead of him. The fact that you are underqualified and the fact that you are messed up and the fact that you are weak is exactly why he wants to use you. It gives him tremendous pleasure and it gives him all the glory. So that's a wonderful, glorious truth, as I said before. But I want to go to the second part of this message now where we'll spend the last uh, few minutes here. This story also comes with a dark side. Struggle, warfare, attack, Satan and pain. Verse 31 Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Oh, my goodness. This is not something you want to hear from Jesus. First of all, how does Satan know about me? Why is he paying attention to me? I want to be under the radar. Simon, Simon, Simon Satan has demanded to have you. Well, surely, Jesus, you said no at that point. Satan asked you for me. You said no, right? You said no. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What on earth is going on here? Satan demanded to have you. Well, there's a couple things we need to look at first that we don't see in the English, that you've got to see in the Greek. And the first thing is, in English, when we say the word you, uh, whether I say you to all of you, uh, that's the same word as if I say you to specifically one of you. It's just you and you, so it's the same thing. So we wouldn't see a difference between plural or singular. You wouldn't know that in the English, whether it be you or whether it be you. But in the Greek, it's two different words. So if you're talking to everybody, that's one kind of you. That's one word. And if I'm talking to one person, that's a different word, singular you. And in this passage, there's two different versions of you. Satan demanded to have you 
is actually a different word than the second one, but I have prayed for you. The first one is plural. Jesus is not just speaking to Peter. He's saying, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, and he uses a different word. It means all of you, all of the disciples. Satan didn't just demand to have Peter. He actually demanded to have all the disciples. He wanted to sift all of the disciples, and he did sift all of them. Satan demanded to have you guys, all of you. He demanded to have you. And then Jesus brings it in, and he gets specific just to Peter, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Peter. And the reason he now speaks to Peter specifically is because out of all, all the disciples getting sifted, Peter's going to fail the most spectacularly. And again, the geometry of that is, is just testament again to the grace of God. Peter fails the hardest, and in the end, he leads the most. It's just God's grace is so amazing. But I've prayed for you. He's going to fail the worst. He's now going to talk to him. And uh, specifically, and I've prayed that your faith may not fail. Now, what does it mean? That, that, that's a little disconcerting. Why would Satan, first of all, why would he want to sift all the disciples? What does that even mean? And second of all, why would Jesus allow him? Does this happen anywhere else in the Bible? Is this a one-time thing? Well, this does happen elsewhere in the Bible. And there's actually a couple of different places we know it happens. But the most famous one would be the story of Job, right? The story of Job. What happens in Job chapters 1 and 2? Satan is roaming on the earth. He's going back and forth. He's looking over the earth. He's seeing things. And then he's going back to heaven and he's making accusations to God about people on the earth. Okay? So, and that's, that's the first thing you need to know. Satan still does that today. He's back and forth. He's on the earth. And then he's in heaven and he's talking to God. And God says to Job, or, or God says to Satan, he says, look at my servant Job and how loyal he is and how godly and look at his integrity. And, and then Satan makes this accusation. Okay? And he says, Job is only loyal to you. He only has his integrity. He's only uh, godly because you bless him. By the way, that's a dual-edged accusation. It's not just an accusation against Job. It's an accusation against God. Essentially, what Satan is saying is people only like you when you give them good stuff. They only like you for what you do for them. They don't really love you. They just love your blessings. It's a dual-sided accusation. Job only likes you because of that. And so then God allows Satan to, in the words of Luke 22, sift Job, right? He, and so Satan sifts Job. And, and the sifting for Job was, was particularly uh, horrific and terrible, right? He loses his family, he loses his wealth, and he loses his health uh, all at one uh, time. Now, uh, we tend to think, I think where we look at this all wrong is most of us, at least I have, maybe you haven't, but... I have always tended to look at Job as sort of this, this aberration, this sort of one-time thing. Like, one time in history, Job was on the earth and then in heaven, and he accused this one guy, and then this terrible thing happened, and we have a book of the Bible about it, and it never happens anywhere else. But mind you, first of all, that wouldn't make sense. Why would this only have ever happened once? So we view Job as sort of a one-off. This isn't regular. This doesn't happen to normal people. This isn't what Satan regularly does. But now we have another example right away. Luke 22 is Satan asks to sift all of the disciples, and Jesus allows him there as well. And I actually believe it's much bigger than just Job and the disciples. I actually believe this is something that Satan wants to do with all believers. And the reason I believe that is found in Revelation chapter 12. And I'm just going to go there briefly. Revelation 12, verses 7 to 17. I'm not going to read all of them, but the context, verses 7 to 17, is, is a prophecy of the end times. That in the days just before Jesus returns, 
uh, Satan is actually going to be cast out of heaven. And a lot of people, when they read that, they go, how is Satan cast out of heaven? I thought he wasn't in heaven to begin with. He is in heaven, just like we see in Job, just like we see in Luke 22. He's on the earth, and then he's in heaven uh, making accusations. And we're going to see that here. Well, in Revelation 7 to 17, he gets cast out. And then we read this. Verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night. So here in this passage we see that one of the main things Satan is always doing is he is day and night accusing the brothers. That's the brothers and sisters. That's us. That's believers. Now for years I've wondered about the logistics of that. And, I, I, and even to this day, I don't understand all of that. Some of it we'll have to wait till heaven to find out. But what does it mean that Satan is accusing us day and night? Why would he do that? I mean, have you ever thought about it? God is omniscient. He doesn't need Satan to tell him what I've done wrong. In fact, God knows my sins. He knows more of my sins than Satan does. You, and you know how I know that? God can read my mind and Satan can't. So God, not only, so Satan's accusing me to God and God's sitting there thinking to himself and you don't know the half of it. You know, Chris did this, 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 and this, and God's going, and he thought this, this, and this. Right? So I've often wondered, what does it mean Satan's accusing? And he's going, you know, now no doubt part of it, and I don't doubt that this is part of it, but generally commentators have talked about how Satan is constantly telling Jesus, you know, he's not worthy, he's not worthy of you using him, she's not worthy of being forgiven by you. But all of that, Jesus just says to him over and over again, I died on the cross for them. So it's never made sense to me why he would day and day, night, day and night, over and over, millions and millions and millions of times, be doing the same thing over and over again, and Jesus just saying, I died for them, I died for them, I died for them, I died for them. But when you bring in Job and Luke 22, suddenly it starts to make sense. And again, I don't doubt that some of those other things are part and parcel a little bit of what Satan is doing. But I think there's actually one specific accusation that is the accusation Satan is bringing against believers. And it's the same one we see in Job. And I believe it's the same one that was in Luke 22. And it's this accusation. It's an accusation not just against us. It's actually an accusation against God. And basically what it is is they only follow you because you're, do you're doing good to them. They don't actually love you for who you are so-and-so only likes you because they still have a job. If they lost their job, they'd hate you. So-and-so only loves you because they have their kids and it's a happy family. If they lost a child, they wouldn't follow you. If they're, if they're, if they're married, if so-and-so got really overwhelmed and they started struggling in their marriage, they wouldn't love you. That's the accusation he brings against us. It's not, it's not real love. And that's why in, in Revelation 12, that's why I believe it says that heaven rejoices in, this, in, these la in the last days, just before Jesus returns, in the great tribulation, when Satan is cast down, it says heaven rejoices. And I often wondered, what does that mean, heaven rejoices? Like, how would the fact that Satan's accusing me be different if he's thrown down to earth? I believe heaven rejoices because at that point when he gets thrown down to earth, there's no longer any sifting going on because he can no longer demand to have believers to sift them. But in the meantime, this accusation goes on and Satan is allowed to Within God's sovereignty, obviously, we see that with Job, we see that with the disciples, Satan has to ask. He's allowed to sift people. Now you say, why would God say yes? Why would God let him sift us? That, I mean, why, why, why does God let him sift Job? Why does he left, let him sift Peter and the disciples? Why would he let him sift us as believers? Why would he let him sift us? 
And I, I think there's a couple of good answers to that, but the first thing we have to say, and no doubt there's many, many answers that I can't even give and wouldn't know, but I think the first thing we need to say is God is sovereign, and God is good, and he turns all things for a good. So the first thing we have to say is God is in charge of Satan, and God is in charge of us. If God lets Satan sift us, it has to be for our good. It has to be for our good. If God lets Satan sift us, it has to be for good. And what I mean by that is not just good in some nebulous theological sense. What I mean is actually good for us, so much so that someday in eternity when we look back, we'll say, thank you for saying yes. Thank you for not refusing. Satan becomes an instrument in God's sovereign hands. God doesn't like what Satan does, but he allows him some freedom and says, yes, I'll allow you to do some sifting within these boundaries. And in the end, we'll look back and say, I'm glad he did. Now you say, well, how on earth could Satan's sifting ever be good for me? And again, I think there's lots of ways which I probably can't even think of. But I think the first thing we have to understand is that sifting is where your, uh, the true hearts are proven and strengthened. It's in the sifting where the bad stuff is sifted out. That's what sifting is. It's in the sifting and the shaking when the, when the parts of your foundation that are not solid get exposed, where the cracks get exposed so that they can be fixed. It's in the sifting where the heart is strengthened in love. I mean, it's like this. When, when, when two people get married, you know, two spouses that they're on their wedding day, on the wedding day, at least in our culture, I know there's other cultures where they do arranged marriages and stuff like that, but in our Western culture, uh, when two people get married on their wedding day, the, the two spouses say, I love you to each other. And by the way, they, and they should. If you can't say it there, you're not going to be able to say it 10 years down the road. Okay? So it's good to say, I love you. I love that. Words of affection are very important, and I enjoy getting them, and I enjoy giving them to it on to. It's all great. But when the two spouses on the wedding day say, I love you, is that mature love? No. That's not mature love. It, in some cases, it's not even real love, it's just words. And we know that because how many marriages start with I love you and end in disaster with people hating each other, bitter against each other, despising each other, can't stand each other. I mean, it's like carnage. How does, and, and yet every marriage starts with an I love you, at least in our culture. I mean, maybe there's an exception somewhere, but it always starts with I love you. That's why they got married in the first place. But somehow they say the words, but... When hard times come, it's exposed that their words of love for each other were not real love. And in the sifting, it breaks apart. But isn't it true in those cases where the love is real, where two people are actually committed to each other? I have seen this over and over again. I've experienced it in 17 years of marriage as well. That when two people in marriage who are committed to each other, when they go through hard things together and come out on the other side, actually their bond went deeper than before they went through the tough time. Is that not true? It's actually better. In fact, there are things you can only learn and, and discover about your spouse's love when you go through tough times together. It's actually true. I mean, I think of my, of my parents, you know, Pastor Ray and, and Fran and all the surgeries and stuff that mom's gone through. There are elements of dad's love when you, you know, in, in some of those years when he was in the hospital constantly, you know, day and night, and you actually saw the bond get strengthened. You saw what real love was. And you could never have seen that love. You could never experience that love unless she was in the hospital. And you come out on the other side and you actually feel, I've heard mom even talk about it, there's a new kind of love, a new strength in love that only comes in the testing. The fire takes the real love and actually purifies it and refines it and makes it better. The same is true of Satan's sifting. 
It's in the sifting and the overwhelm where your love for Jesus, you get to experience things of Jesus you could never experience before. You get to experience his grace in ways you could never experience before. And the bond is actually strengthened. Or your love for him is not real and it exposes it and you fall away just like, a broken, just like what happens in a broken marriage. So that's why Jesus allows Satan to do sifting. And so yes, there will be times in our lives when Jesus will allow Satan to sift you. Now, wouldn't it be great if There'd be a little beeper on your hand, and when a time of sifting would come, it would go, beep, 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 this is the time of sifting, just hang on, you'll be okay. Oh, yes. It doesn't come like that, does it? And you're not thinking about sifting, you're not thinking about the bigger picture, you're not thinking about God and Satan and and eternity, you're not thinking about that. All you're thinking is, oh my goodness, this is horrible. And usually it's more than one thing when it's a time of sifting, like Job, it's family, finances, and health all at once. But it could be a tragedy in your family, followed by a shocking health diagnosis you didn't expect, followed by a financial thing or any one or a combination of them, and you're going through this, and it doesn't even feel like sifting. It feels like burning. It feels like you've been chucked into the bonfire, and you're being charred to a crisp, and how on earth am I going to survive? And the only thing expected of you in that time is for your faith not to fail. Hang on to Jesus. That's what the sifting is about. And he's going to shake out everything in you that is self-centered and worldly and doesn't want to submit to Jesus. He's going to shake it out and he's going to take everything left that's pure and he's going to make it stronger and he's going to refine it. And isn't it true that people who go through this sifting and come out on the other side, rather than being exposed and broken, that they actually come out on the other side, that there's actually a beauty to them. Isn't it true? People have gone through really, really tough things, but they've gone through it with Jesus and they come out faithful to him on the other end. There's something beautiful about them on the other side. You, you want to be around them. There's a, there's a humility and a joy and a grace and just the smell of Jesus is on them. And these are all some of the reasons why Jesus allows sifting in our lives. And so, but we have to remind ourselves in prayer that Satan expects you to fall away. He thought Job would for sure fall away. He thinks you are going to fall away. He thought Peter and the disciples would fall away. That's why he's accusing. He goes to Jesus because he doesn't believe our love for Jesus is real. And so in prayer, we need to come to him. Now, encouragement, I'm going to end the message here. The encouragement is Jesus didn't just pray for Peter. He's praying for you, verse 32. But I have prayed for you. Satan had to come to him for permission. Jesus will not allow him to do anything beyond what you can handle. It might feel like it's way beyond what you can handle, but again, you're not expected to do much. You're just expected to hang on and be faithful and don't get bitter. And if you do get bitter and give up on Jesus, that means this, it's, not the sift, it's not the fault of the sifting. The sifting just exposed what was there. But we are not of those, as Paul says, who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who persevere and are proved. So what is Jesus saying to you today out of this message? Could be a number of things. Here's a couple of things and then we'll pray about them and we'll be done. Maybe to some of you Jesus is saying it's time for you to let go of your inadequacy with regards to serving him. You've been using your inadequacy as an excuse. And Jesus is saying it was never about you, it was about me. It's time for you to take a risk. It's time for you to start serving the Lord with your gifts and abilities because that's what a Christian does. And you say, but I'm just a broken down golf club. Great, he wants the glory. The more broken you are, the better for him. Or maybe you're here today and you're going through a time of sifting and you just do not know how you're going to make it through. 
First of all, know that Jesus is praying for you. Second of all, doesn't something just rise up in you prayerfully by the Spirit that you want to prove Satan wrong about you? You are not going to break. You are not of those. We are not, like he says in, uh, I forget which book of Paul, but he says in there, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. And so maybe what Jesus is saying to you today is, I actually just need to make a commitment. I need to be determined. I need to say, no matter what happens in this sifting, I'm going to do right and I'm going to hold on to Jesus. And then with that comes a prayer, please help me. I'm going to hold on to you, Jesus, no matter what. Please help me hold on. I'm going to stick with you no matter what, Jesus. Please help me to stick. It's a determination with a prayer, right? I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for using Peter's weakness for good. Lord, I'm praying for every person here today. Some of us, Lord, we actually just need to start engaging with your kingdom. We need to start serving. Our inadequacy is precisely what qualifies us for your kingdom because it's what gives you glory. Help us to stop being so afraid. Help us to stop being so overwhelmed. And then, Lord, there's a number of us here today, and we are right in the middle of sifting. Jesus, I've seen so many people here this weekend already in these services who's going through tense times of sifting. I'm praying your Holy Spirit this morning to touch each of those people. And they're just feeling so overwhelmed right now, Jesus. And you love them so deeply, and you're saying, you will make this. I'm with you. Jesus is good. Jesus loves you. Jesus is praying for you. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen each person. Give them, give them strength to hang on to you. Give them strength to fight on another day. Give them strength to do right. Give them strength to rise above, to surprise Satan and prove him wrong. I thank you, Jesus, for what you're going to do. I pray that you would cover all of us in your blood, that nobody's faith would fail them. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.